I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems to me that uh, people's level of, of anger and hostility and rage seems to be at a higher level than probably it's been in a while. Uh, driving around a little bit, you may experience some of that. Um, I read this week that uh, there was a flight attendant, I think on an American Airlines flight, and first class walking up the aisle, she bumped into some guy, uh, apologized profusely, he got up, smacked her in the face, broke her facial bones, and she ended up in the hospital because of that. Um, there's been other sluggings of flight attendants uh, as well. I was reading that there's a 600% increase in incidents on airplanes over the last couple years. And uh, they said there were 5,000 reported and 3,500 of those were over masks and wearing or, or not wearing masks. And we seem to be in a culture that just is kind of inculcating this anger and and rage within us. Um, Those that run social media and news platforms recognize that if they get us ticked off and angry, we're much more likely to click on that next story. So Silicon Valley is basically monetizing our rage and making money off it. They recognize, as the newspaper people of old have known, that if it bleeds, it leads. Meaning you want to put the nastiest thing you can on the front of the paper because you know people are going to read that. So we're living in the midst of a culture that just is kind of inculcating in us just this simmering anger and rage. And our culture is not one to say, you know, we'll just turn the other cheek, right? If you look at our movies and video games, what it's, it's don't get mad, get even. Take the other person out, right? And, you know, it happens to people out there. It would never happen to you, say, if you're driving on Davis Highway and there's somebody maybe going to pull out in front of you and... They don't look like they're going to pull out, and then they don't look, and then finally they pull out right in front of you at the last minute, and they cause you not to be able to get through that light. And, you know, I've heard people may say a word under their breath when that, when that happens, and it's just part of our world right now. So how should we look at our anger? How should we handle these emotions of anger and rage that, well, up within us as we interact with people in our world. Anger comes basically when something we desire or we want is thwarted. And something in us rises up, and usually when anger rises up, we always feel our anger is justified, right? It's the other person that is, what, the idiot that doesn't have two brain cells to rub together, all those kind of things that tend to well up in us when things like that happens. And so I think Jesus is very aware of this propensity and tendency in all of us as human beings for anger to well up. And he addresses that in kind of his first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Last time we saw that Jesus said, I'm not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill out its meaning. And then this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, six times he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He gives a teaching that they'd heard, usually it was from the Old Testament, and then he says, okay, that teaching, 
It's not a bad teaching, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. So he, in this section, I think, is telling us, okay, how do we live in a way, like he said last time, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees for you to enter into the kingdom of God. And that doesn't shock us because we've got kind of a negative view of those guys already. But in that culture, they were the most holy, most righteous people around. And so when Jesus said that, everybody's like, how in the world is that possible? And then he moves into this section. And he says, okay, this is how that is lived out. This is how your righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in this section and in the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus moves people from kind of an external compliance to the religious rules and regulations that they had been taught in that culture that they would be able to check that box and say, I'm good, I'm good. And Jesus moves it from the external to the internal. And he says, okay, you may have that external down. You may be tithing your mint, dill, and cumin. That is awesome. Keep doing that. But you know what? God wants more than just this external conformity. He, he wants our heart. And so in all of these things, Jesus is taking something external and he's moving it into our heart. He is showing that the intent of the law never was to be focused on the externals. Not an external circumcision. In the Old Testament, even it points, says, I want your hearts to be circumcised. I want them to be tender towards God. So that is what Jesus starts in this section. And he does and says some audacious things. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, the people were astounded because he taught as one with authority, unlike their scribes and their Pharisees. He would taught, teach and he wouldn't say, well, the previous rabbis have said this. He would just say, this is how it is. It was like, nobody teaches. Who, who does this guy think he is? And so that's the section here we're going to look at. It's the first one of those, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So starting in Matthew chapter 5, if you have a Bible, I'll encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. If you are just kind of visiting, checking out Christianity, we're really glad you're here. There's a bookshelf in the foyer that has Christian resources and materials there. So pick up anything that is of interest to you. So let's read the Word of God starting in verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is a reading of God's word. So how should we handle our anger according to Jesus. He starts out here, you've heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. That's a quote from the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. This is the sixth of the Ten Commandments. You find them in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments. 
And when we hear that, it's like, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Judgment is the penalties that are outlined in those first books of the Bible for murder. And if you look at the word murder in, uh, I think the King James says, you know, shall not kill. But there's several, I think seven words for killing in Hebrew. This word is the one that was used of intentional, kind of premeditated taking of life. It wasn't used if somebody invaded your home and you killed them there. It wasn't used of killing animals. It wasn't used of the state executing capital punishment upon those that were guilty of that. But this is a premeditated act. He says, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's like, we read that, it's like most of us are like, pretty good. We got that one. We can, we can feel pretty good about ourselves. I've, I've got that one nailed. I hadn't murdered anybody last week, not planning on it this week. I'm pretty good with God, right? And then Jesus takes it inside. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults, literally says raka to his brother will be liable to the council. Haven't said raka to anybody this week. I think I'm, I'm good there as well. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire or Gehenna. And so the reality is, Jesus says, okay, this is not just about an external act of murder. Where I want to take this commandment and what the intent of the commandment was and my filling out, not abolishing these commandments, but teaching you what it really means is I want it to go to the heart. And in the heart, murder always starts with anger. And he, he uses this word. There's two basic words for anger in Greek. One is the word that's used here. And then there's another word that is thumos, and thumos is kind of that, that instant rage. Something happens and you're instantly hot, but it tends to pass fairly quickly. It's, it's the pine straw kind of fire, you know? It burns up really quickly, but dies out pretty quickly. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is more of a pecan smoldering log type of anger. You know, that thing is going to be burning for a while. And it's a present participle here. So it's this idea of he who is continuing to be angry with his brother. Some translations translate he who nurses a grudge against his brother is going to be liable to judgment. And so it's an anger that that happens and you know sometimes those anger things flash and we're not really I can't control my emotions you know when that happens it's like okay that hits I'm angry in scripture it says be angry yet what don't sin so scripture recognizes that we get angry but the reality is when we get angry we have choices of what to do with that and when that anger hits the pine stuff flares up, then we've got the choice to say, okay, am I going to add some pecan logs onto this thing? Am I going to go over this again and again in my head and ruminate on it and dwell on it and get more and more and more and more ticked off at what this person did to me? And he says, if, if your brother's got something against you, and again, most of us, when we get angry, we feel completely justified in our anger, Right? Why? Because the other person is obviously wrong. They're the one that doesn't have an awareness of what the situation really should be. And then if we let that go, usually that kind of interior rumination and anger oftentimes spills out in words. 
That person is just, can you believe what that person did? That person is such a dumb, whatever you want to fill in there, idiot. They don't have much going on upstairs. They just do not understand the situation. And Jesus says, when you do that, you're going to be subject to be dragged before the council. And the council was the word Sanhedrin. It's the, the Supreme Court of Israel. And it's like, really, Jesus? Are you saying, you know, I say, you're an idiot to somebody? And, and I'm dragged before the Supreme Court. And my accuser says, you know, this is Brett Helvey. Somebody pulled out in front of him on Davis Highway. And he said, that person's such an idiot. And I'm guilty. And I'm like, wow, that's, no, that's just so unrealistic. And then Jesus pushes it even further. And he says, if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the judgment of Gehenna. The Gehenna was this valley of Ben-Hinnom where some of the bad kings in Israel's history, Ahaz was one of them, put an idol to Molech there. And that's where they would sacrifice children to Molech. And Molech was this statue with his hands out like that. And they'd heat the statue up to red hot basically and place an infant child in the hands of this statue and that child would be burned to death in service to this God. And when God judged Israel and the Babylonians came in and slaughtered the people, that's where they put a lot of the bodies. And then by Jesus' time, this area had become basically a trash dump that was constantly burning with refuse and had become a metaphor for the eternal destruction of people that were outside of God. And Jesus says, hey, if you say to somebody, you fool, you're unliable to the judgment of, of this burning pit. And it's like, what in the world? This is like a little bit over the top, isn't it, Jesus? Who of us has not gotten that angry? And we hear you fool, and it's similar to empty head, which is what raka means in Aramaic. But fool in that culture was more than just a kind of insult of contempt for somebody's intellectual ability. It was a character assassination. It was their moral condition. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Look up fool in Proverbs. There's proverb after proverb after proverb of the fool. And it's not necessarily someone who isn't really bright, but it's someone that could give a rip about God and is going his or her own way through life. So, so that's how it often moves, right? We're, we're hurt, we're insulted, something happens to us, we get angry. Then we begin to say, ah, that person is such an idiot, they don't know what's going on. And then we move past that to not only are they an idiot, but they're pretty morally deficient. They're, they're a bad person. And, and this is how things wrap up in our head and we move to kind of character assassination and, and really hating the other person. And the Apostle John tells us in 1 John that if you hate your brother, it's the same as, as murder, I think, taking it from, from this section. Nobody engages in premeditated murder if it doesn't first start with hatred. And... That command not to murder is given in the Old Testament. Why? Because all of us are created in the image of God. And when we diminish people and when we hold them in contempt and when we say all nasty things about them, we are literally assassinating them and trying to take them out. And families where anger hits them, someone will say, what? You're dead to me. I don't want to ever see you again. You are dead to me. And I know Peter, in dealing with Muslim cultures, many times Muslims that come to faith, their family says, basically, you're dead to us. They may even physically try to kill them, but basically the relationship is done because the hatred is there because they have abandoned the Islamic faith. 
So Jesus, he gets to our heart right away. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, who of us has not felt this periodically? Who of us has not been in that place where something has been done to us and the anger builds up? And then we think about it a little bit more. And if we look at Scripture, we realize, you know what? Not all anger is sinful, right? Jesus got angry, right? In Mark 3.1, Jesus gets ticked off at the Pharisees. Why? Because he's in synagogue and there's somebody that needs healing on a Sabbath. And all the religious leaders, they could give a rip about the guy that needs that healing They're just ticked off that Jesus has the audacity to heal on the Sabbath and break their tradition of what is allowed and not allowed on the Sabbath. And in Mark 3, Jesus looked at them and he was was angry. In Matthew 22, Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over the tables. He was pretty angry there, right? And so what distinguishes what we would call a godly anger or a righteous anger from what James would say in James 1.20, the, the anger of man that does not accomplish or produce the righteousness of God? I think there are a couple things. First, if you see what Jesus gets angry at, it's never usually a personal insult or affront to him. He is angry because there's some injustice something that is going on that is wrong, that is harming somebody else. The Pharisees looking at him where a man is suffering and and they're ticked off that Jesus has the audacity to heal that guy, bring something beneficial into his life on a day when that was supposedly not allowed. Or going into the temple courts, the area that was reserved for the Gentiles, for them to foster their relationship and to come to this God of the Jews, this area of prayer for them, and they'd been turning it into a marketplace saying, eh, God doesn't really give a rip about the Gentiles anyhow. We hate those people. So, hey, let's just set up shop here. We'll make a lot of money and we'll be good. And Jesus gets mad at that injustice. But Peter tells us when Jesus was personally reviled, insulted, treated poorly, he did not revile in return. And so I think so often when I get angry, I won't speak for you, but when I get angry, it's a personal affront to me. I'm not concerned about some big just issue and and really concerned about somebody else. That is wonderful when we have that kind of anger because that can motivate to action. But most of the time when I get angry, it's because somebody has thwarted my will, my desire, what I want for a particular situation or in a particular place. And Jesus, it says, was silent before his accusers that were accusing him of all sorts of things. And to me, the the difficulty here is it doesn't say that that accusation or the anger that the other person has against you is somehow justified, right? It doesn't say that. That person is right. It just says, if you know that your brother has something against you, you go and, and be reconciled. And it, doesn't, it doesn't say that, no, the guy's really in the wrong, <laughs> or you're really in the wrong, and so work it out. But it just says there's, there's this relational disconnect between you and this other person. We read the passage from Colossians where we see that God at his heart is what? A reconciling God. That's his heart, is to reconcile us to him and us to one another. And as we 
experience anger that does not produce reconciliation, does it? It produces division and discord. And again, to me, I see a little progression here. It's like I'm angry, then I say a certain thing, and then I, what I say even intensifies farther than that. And Jesus kind of examples of the liability to judgment, increase from judgment before the Supreme Court, and then you're in danger of the fires of Gehenna. And the reality is, Jesus is saying, this is serious. We tend to minimize our anger, right? Yeah, everybody gets angry. But Jesus says it's, it's really, really serious. And I dare say we've all experienced this, right? And again, I think some of us are just a little bit more trigger-figured than others that have a temper that goes off quickly. But I think all of us have experienced that reality. And when anger hits, then the question is, is that pine straw, am I going to use that as kindling to put some big logs on there and just to continue to allow that to smolder and to burn and for me to get angrier and angrier at other people. So how do we move from that place of rage and hatred and anger at someone to a posture of reconciliation? I think there's kind of three ideas that are here that Jesus helps us to focus on. And the first to me is just to focus on how much reconciliation we have received from Jesus. The man, where is he? He is bringing his sacrificial animal to the altar, and the only place that had an altar was in Jerusalem. If you know where Jesus is preaching this message, it's up in Galilee. It's about an 80-mile journey to Jerusalem. So he's, he's come down to Jerusalem with this animal to, pre- to present that animal for a sacrifice. Why do you present an animal for a sacrifice? Because there's something in your life that you need God to forgive, to move past, to move beyond. And so to me, it's the height of hypocrisy for this guy to be there saying, you know what? Ah, God, I really need your forgiveness, but I'm not willing to extend that to somebody else. And Jesus places such a high priority on the reconciliation of relationships that he says, don't participate in religious rituals if that stuff is going on in your life. Notice he uses this word liable, you're liable, you're liable, you're liable, you're liable. We are all liable before God. And I think as we look at this, this is kind of hard because I think this hits all of us, right? We're liable before God and The beauty of the Christian life is that Jesus Christ on that cross has taken up all of our liabilities, right? Our debts were nailed to the cross. He took them away. So we've been forgiven so, so much. And this man that's there to offer his sacrifice, he says, you've been forgiven by me. What in the world are you doing holding this grudge against someone or someone holding a grudge against you? There's this relational tension. Go resolve that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read that. Just a beautiful passage about the reconciliation that Christ has provided. Starting in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. What is the passage saying there? Was Jesus justified in his anger and God the Father justified in his anger against our sin and our rebellion? You bet he was. But because he valued reconciliation with himself so highly, he was willing to take upon himself the liability of my sin, the punishment of death, so that we could have life. In Matthew 18, Jesus, or Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother, right? Peter says seven times, and I think Peter's thinking, wow, I am so generous, seven times, that number of perfect, this is great, you know? And Jesus says, ah, yeah, Peter, well, why don't you multiply that by 70? Not giving, okay, 490, once I reach there, I can be really ticked off at this person and not forgive them, no. But if you're counting, you're not really forgiving, okay? The reality, he says, is forgive, forgive, forgive. And then after that, he tells this parable of a king that is owed literally billions of dollars by one of his servants. And the servant begs him and he says, yeah, I'll pay it back. Yeah, right, you will. And, and the king forgives the debt. And then that guy goes out. And he's got someone that he knows that owes him probably 10 to 20 grand. And he shakes that guy down and he says, you pay up now. And the guy can't pay up and he puts him in debtor's prison. And the king hears about that and he is angry. So what is the point of that parable? It's like we have been forgiven so much by God. We could never repay our debt to God. So what right do we have holding our brothers and sisters accountable to those things that they have done to us that may have accrued accrued a quite smaller amount of debt? So if I enter into this world, and if you're in a church, you're going to get hurt by the church. Why? Because the church is made up of what? People. And none of us are people that have arrived at that place of perfection yet. None of us. We're going to say things. We're going to do things. Maybe in a moment of thumas where the pine straw is burning, it's like, oh, that was so stupid. And what do we do in that case? First and foremost... We need to recognize if we're the one that's wounded how much we have been forgiven. That we're not perfect. In Romans 15, 7, Paul says, accept one another just as Christ Jesus has accepted you so that God gets the glory. How did Christ Jesus accept you? Did he come to me and say, Brett, your life is a screwed up mess right now. You've been living for yourself, you've been living for your own pleasure and your own glory, but I tell you what, we're going to put you on a seven-year reform program, and we're going to work on every one of those things. You get those things dialed in, and then I will accept you. No, he says, just, man, be real. Acknowledge those things to me, turn to me for forgiveness, and then you know what? I will embrace you, I will adopt you into my family, I will allow my Holy Spirit to begin to reside in you to transform you from the inside out, and that's how we'll work on that stuff. And so when we hold our brother or sister accountable to something that they've done to wrong us, even if we are totally justified in holding on that thing, Jesus says we've got to be willing 
to forgive. We've got to be willing to let go of that anger. Why? Because God has been willing to let go of his and to take the punishment for the liabilities that you and I accrued. And believe me, there are a lot more than any personal liability that you have with somebody else. So first and foremost, focus on the reconciliation that you have received from God first. And then the second thing, don't minimize the seriousness of anger that's not dealt with. Again, Jesus says, liable, liable, liable. There's, there's some intensity in this, right? And whether this is hyperbole, because certainly the next section when he deals with lust, he talks about chopping off your hand and gouging out your eye. He's not meaning that literally. Whether that's hyperbole and saying, hey, if you do this, you're going to go to the Supreme Court, basically. Or even if it was more hyperbole, the point is it's serious. He's using that to say this is really, really significant. In Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15, it says this, Strive for peace with everyone. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You hear churches splitting over what the color of the carpet is in the sanctuary or how to do this or how to do that. You know what? Those churches aren't splitting over the color of the carpet. They're splitting over relationships that have not been reconciled. Hurt that has happened and the color of the carpet just happens to be the lightning rod that takes that hit for the personal animosity that is going on between people in the church. And I think we're living in a day and age where that is at a heightened level in our culture. How we view vaccines, how we view masks, all that kind of stuff. And, and people in the church are willing to separate from their brothers and sisters because they look at this issue in a slightly different way. And we all have ways of justifying it and saying our way is the right way. But I want to tell you that that is not an issue that should divide brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is dividing brothers and sisters in Christ all over this country today. And that's not right. And the world looks at us and says, man, they're just like us. Just like us. Personal reconciliation is super important to Jesus. One of my mentors, he was a great Bible teacher, and he felt that the whole book of Philippians was written for two ladies that couldn't get along. <laughs> In chapter 4, it says, I plead with Yodia and Syntyche, get along, ladies. And I've mentioned that before. How would you like to be, you know, oh, we got a letter from Paul. We're reading through it. And he's like, whoa. And then you get named, ladies, get along. And it's not just ladies, it's guys. It happens all over the place. And Paul calls that out, felt it was important enough to put into one of his letters and say, okay, this needs to be dealt with. And he says, others around him, you help them work through this. Sometimes it's difficult to work through those personal conflicts and you need other people to get involved and to get help. But the importance is, is working through those areas. So do not minimize the importance of dealing with anger. Don't let that stuff go. And if you read through this passage, you also see that Jesus is calling us not to procrastinate dealing with this stuff. So you've traveled 80 miles with your gift, right? And then... 
One of the commentators, Archie France, said this, you, you, you leave it there and you have to take like a week's journey back to Galilee to resolve whatever issue you have. It's like, that's, wow, that's a whole lot. That's a lot, that's a lot of sacrifice. You know, can I just offer it and then go home and deal? No, he says, go home, deal with that first, then come back, take another week journey. Hopefully somebody at the temple is caring for the sacrificial animal and, and deal with it. And then he says, if you're being dragged to court by somebody, your accuser. He says, settle on the way to the court. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. This idea that this stuff needs to be dealt with quickly. Don't put it off. Don't hesitate. Don't keep saying, well, I'll, I'll deal with that, or maybe it'll just go away, right? That's right. It'll just go away. I was... When I'm doing premarital counseling, I talk to couples about anger and resolving it. And, and then the reality is, you know, Scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, there's going to be stuff that you do as couples that you're going to take one another off. That's just reality. It's happened throughout history in marriages. And it's like, okay, am I going to deal with that issue before I let the sun go down on it? Or am I going to allow it to simmer? And Jesus here is saying the same thing. Deal with it quickly because if you don't deal with it i liken it to stuff in a bachelor's refrigerator you know you know you need to clean that stuff out but you just push it to the back and put some stuff in front of it right and, and you know it's like okay that's not going to make the situation any better right it's just it's eventually going to make it a whole lot worse you're going to have to pull it out and it's going to be even nastier so why don't you just deal with it right now how many of you when you hold on to those feelings of anger and you don't seek to resolve it, does it just get better and better? And it's just like, oh, that's really cool. Now, this is stuff that Jesus says we need to deal with and we need to deal with it quickly. And again, this is, this is uncomfortable. None of us likes this. But to me, this is essential in the church if we're going to flourish as a church. If we're not going to divide over little things that actually become huge things because other little things were not dealt with before where someone didn't go to somebody else and say, hey, you know, I'm just feeling this relational tension between us. You know, I'm wondering if I've done something that has hurt you. And you know, that's really hard to do, but it's really essential to do if we're going to function in a healthy way. Because if we just allow that stuff to simmer and to burn, it's going to get hotter and hotter and we're going to end up saying stuff and doing stuff and assassinating people's character and it's just going to spill out and as Hebrews says that root of bitterness is going to grow it's going to produce trouble that's going to defile not just that person but many it spreads it's like well this is just my personal grudge it spreads, right? The Hatfields and McCoys. They're fighting about stuff that they probably don't even know why they're fighting about it anymore, but they're still fighting about it. Why? Because other people were fighting about it. And factions build up and schisms build up and all that kind of stuff happens. So if God's bringing somebody to mind right now that you need to reconcile with, I'm going to urge you to do that. And not to put it off and say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that next week. Because you know what? It's never going to become more comfortable. It never is. But if you let it go, it's going to create distance in your relationship with that person and ultimately spill over into other relationships as well. In Romans 12, 18, Paul says this, 
if possible, as far as it's up to you, live at peace with all people. Recognizing, you know what, sometimes a person's going to rebuff you. I don't, you know, I'm done. Okay, you've done your job there. Then, okay, Holy Spirit, you be at work in this person's heart and life. I've sought to reconcile. And this isn't a Pollyannish view that every time you go and, and you seek this reconciliation, it's just, oh, wonderful, you know, and everybody walks away, hap, hap, happy. That's, that doesn't always happen, right? But have you done your part? If possible, as it's up to you, you live at peace with all people. Are you willing to move towards that? And to me, both cases that are given here in this little section, you realize that your brother or your accuser has something against you, right? So what do we do if we have something against somebody else? What if I'm the offended one? I think there's a couple things that we do. Um, First, Proverbs 19.11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If you have the ability, if you've been offended, and you don't see this, it may be a thumos moment for somebody else. You know, this isn't kind of characteristic of what they are. You recognize, you know, they're not constantly wounding and hurting other people. Sometimes it's a glory for you just to say, okay, I'm just going to absorb this. I'm just going to recognize, you know what? None of us are perfect. I've made stupid mistakes. I've said stupid things that have probably hurt somebody else, and I'm just... That's okay, I'm going to let it go. If you can do that and still act in a loving manner towards that person that has offended you, it's a glorious thing. You don't have to bring all of that up. But then, if not, if there's an ongoing sin pattern, if you look at this person and you see, wow, this person has hurt that person and that person and that person and that person, then what, to me, the responsibility is found in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, you go to your brother, you seek to talk it out. Sometimes that doesn't work. You bring somebody else, and, and that whole process of church discipline is enacted at that point in time. But again, all of this stuff points out to me the importance of reconciled relationships in the church and among believers and how seriously God takes them and how seriously Jesus took them. And this reality of it's like, I don't want your religious rituals if your heart is not right with your fellow believers. In 1 John, he talks about this all of the time. Don't go blabbing on about how much you love Jesus and how great that is if you're hating your brother and you don't love your sister. I don't want to hear it. You be reconciled. And if you're not there, you pray to God that he would give you a heart that is willing, first and foremost, to look at how much you've been forgiven and then to offer that forgiveness to other people. And I'm not standing up here in any way and saying this is easy. This is really, really hard to do. But it's what God is calling his people to be as citizens of his kingdom. A place where reconciliation, not rage, reigns. And if we're going to follow Jesus' pattern, we're going to be people that are willing to enter into the discomfort of that to say, you know what, let's make this right. Have I done something wrong? Or willing to say, you know what, I'm going to give grace to this person. I know, all right, it was just a really bad day, and I can let that go. So as you think about this passage, if the Holy Spirit's bringing someone to mind, I want you to deal with it.
And again, it's significant and it's important. It's not something that's just a little thing that we're just going to let go. Jesus says, ultimately, this, if it's allowed to burn and rage inside you, makes you liable to the fires of Gehenna. That's serious. Jesus is always going for our heart. And we always find it easier to deal with the superficials, right? The externals, what's on the surface. And it's not something that any of us can do on our own. As we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we recognize that this sermon was given to his disciples. Those that had already gotten to that point where they said, you know what, I need to repent and I need to believe the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is the king. And how are we accepted there? We're accepted simply by our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But then he's calling us to live in a way that's consistent with the values of his kingdom. My hope and prayer is that we're a body that does that. And so if you need help in this area, I'm more than willing to help talk with you or work through this stuff with you. But I want you to take it seriously. And I'm really grateful that this church has been a place where there's been so little of that stuff that has gone on. And I think one of the reasons that has happened is because we hit this theme and said, you gotta, if there's an issue you have, go and talk with that person. Talk it through. If you need some help, we're here to help work through that issue with you too. But please do not let that stuff fester. Because we're called to be a place of reconciliation and not rage. Let's pray. Jesus, you set a bar that's super, super high. Yet we want to strive for that. We want to seek to be people that live in relationships that are flourishing and that are full of grace and understand, Lord, how important you look at this issue of personal relationships being healthy and whole and thriving in your body. Again, Lord, none of us have arrived at a place of perfection. We all need your grace and your help in this. Lord, this stuff is difficult and uncomfortable and and makes us squirm, but Lord, help us to seek to follow your word, to go and to be willing to do that quickly so that you can then restore peace and reconciliation in relationships that will honor you and be relationships that reflect you to this world. By this, all men will know that you're my followers if you have love one for another. I would help us to have that kind of love so that you get the glory and you get the honor. And it's in Jesus' precious and powerful name I pray. Amen.